Welcome to episode 45 of About IBD. I'm Amber Tresca. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at age 16 and had two-step J-pouch surgery 10 years later. I'm the IBD expert at VeryWell.com and the person behind AboutIBD.com and the About IBD social media platforms. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. My guest is Dr. Peter Higgins, who is a gastroenterologist at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Dr. Higgins is what we call an IBDologist. He specializes in IBD, and not only does he see patients, he also participates in research. Earlier this year, we were both at a meeting for healthcare professionals who specialize in IBD, which is called Crohn's and Colitis Congress. We were able to connect for a bit in the press room and talk about some of the presentations from the meeting, as well as a bit about the research Dr. Higgins is doing at U of M. It is really some cutting edge stuff that includes fecal transplants, healing strictures in the intestines, and printing custom ostomy products. We get into the weeds a little bit, so please refer to the show notes or go to aboutibd.com to find links to more information about our discussion. It is really exciting and hopeful to me to hear about what's in the pipeline for people living with IBD and how it may improve quality of life. I hope you come away from this episode feeling the same. So thanks for sitting with me. <laughs> this is great. I'm always so um, pleased to come to these type of meetings, but for you guys, I always wonder how you managed to make it to so many meetings as, as physicians and how you handle the travel and being away from your patients and, and all of that. So how does that work so out? So part of that is there are two pieces. One is covering the not quite emergent uh, patient portal messages, right? which I can typically do in 30 to 60 minutes a day. Yeah. And so that's just kind of blocking an hour away mm -hmm. in the hotel room, knocking out. But then there's the truly urgent things that require pagers. Right. And so there's usually, like at Michigan, fortunately we have 15 IBD people. There's a few people who stay back and don't go to this meeting and cover mm -hmm. everyone else's pagers. So mm -hmm. they have a rough couple of days. But, right, right. But, I think it's better than it used to be. I remember during... DDW years past, it would be like you couldn't get anybody, anybody on the phone. Yeah. yeah. So typically, like at Michigan, we have assigned DDW duty. Okay. <laughs> and and so at a minimum, we have three gastroenterologists who are at the main base full time mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the, the whole DDW. Mm -hmm. um, and it comes up, you know, every 15 years or so that that's your year okay. to stay back. But, okay. So it's not too bad. It's not too bad. But, yeah. And so, but it's critical that you come to these type of meetings, right? I mean, I know yeah. sometimes for patients it can be like, oh, my doctor's in an office, but you know, what types of things are you learning that you can bring back to your practice? So a lot of times it's the newest of the new, uh, mm -hmm. usually at, particularly at DDW, that's mm -hmm. where most people save their really new data. Yeah. Um, and somewhat at ECHO, which mm -hmm. is the, the big IBD meeting in Europe. Right. Um, all the new data about new treatments, mm -hmm. about new diagnostic studies, mm -hmm. anything that's cutting edge and coming soon is gonna show up at one of those two meetings generally. Right, right. Yeah. So, and then a meeting like this, it's there was a little bit of research. Here. Yeah, this is an interesting mix. So okay. this meeting is sort of a hybrid of roughly half kind of newest, latest and greatest cutting edge yeah. and half of how do we consolidate our knowledge and communicate that to patients and caregivers 
And part of that was, for example, the guideline session mm -hmm. on Thursday, right. where we talked about, okay, here's the state of the art, given the evidence we have, this is what you should be doing today. Whereas some of the science is, this is, we're pretty sure this is right, but it might not reach practice for two or three years. And we need to sort out how it should influence your practice. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit of both. Right. Even two or three years, you think? That, some of them, some of them, yeah. yeah. I mean, some of them are more pipe dreams. I think that, <laughs> you know, the stem cell stuff may be a few more years away. Yeah. Uh, and other things may not pan out in terms right. of the research. Right. Uh, and that's one of the things that it's important to realize. A lot of the research that's really cutting edge is sort of the first step into an area. Mm -hmm. And it may look very promising, but it may not pan out. Right. Even though a lot of times it might get hyped and people are like really excited about yeah. it. Sometimes as you dig into it deeper and do more work, there you identify problems or issues that prevent it from actually reaching practice. Right. We saw some mouse model stuff here, especially mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the microbiome and how they're starting to think about how we can shift the microbiome and how it can affect IBD mm -hmm. or prevent IBD. And um, it was really exciting because that ties into nutrition. Absolutely. And I was saying to someone yesterday, I feel like it's kind of broken open as far as nutrition goes. Do you feel that that's sort of, because we used to tell people diet didn't matter. Yes and no. So yeah. I think in general, uh, as, as a rule of thumb, if something works in mice, the chances that it's actually going to reach, yes, we should do this in humans, is somewhere around 10%. Mm -hmm. That 90% will not make that leap. Mm -hmm. Some of that is the mice, that yeah. humans are just different. Yeah. Some of that is that the mouse immune system microbiota are just different from humans. Uh, another piece of it is mice can't get away. They yeah. stay in a cage and they give, they eat the diet you give them. Yeah. Um, in the real world, if you said, oh, we have discovered that if we give you this particular chow for the rest mm -hmm. of your life, you eat nothing else, mm -hmm. your IBD will be 50% better. Mm -hmm. That's really hard for people to do right. <laughs> right. when they have access to all kinds of food, you know, and then there's the challenge of even if you can use a nutritional supplement to tweak the microbiome mm -hmm. and you can convince someone to not eat any of the fabulous foods we have available yeah. to us, um, there's also the interaction with the gut immune system that the immune system selectively picks off bacteria in the gut mm -hmm. to protect itself. Um, and to some extent, people with IBD have a different gut immune system. Mm -hmm. And they're programmed or reprogrammed in a way that even if you try to shift the microbiome with a nutritional alteration, it may, the immune system may actually push back in a bad way. Okay. And it's not clear that one, we can permanently alter the microbiome in an IBD patient without doing fecal transplant, which actually does work. In, mm -hmm a decent number of patients, mm -hmm. not everybody, but a lot. Um, and then how sustainable is it? Mm -hmm. And and to what extent can you change somebody's microbiome a fair amount with an intervention, but their immune system will work to shift it back? Mm -hmm. And how hard you have to work to keep it that way? Um, a lot of the fecal transplant studies have been pretty intensive, mm -hmm. you know, multiple stool animus day after day for UC right. have been successful. Mm -hmm. um, but when the biggest Australian studies actually did 40 stool enemas over mm -hmm. eight weeks mm -hmm. to maintain that. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to think about maintaining long term. Right. Just just maintaining, not even just to push you into a point where you could feel that you could stop doing it. You had to keep 
doing that. Well, that that was the know. experiment. They yeah. did it for eight weeks and did 40 enemas. Okay. And I think, you know, the newer research is moving to, okay, how much less can we do and still get a benefit? Right. You know, and the benefits were solid. They weren't amazing, They were, but they were solid. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's definitely hope there. It's just, can we get to a point that it's practical and sustainable for the average person to do this and stick with it? Right, because the, the fecal transplant is usually, at this point, right, they're giving it to you via enema or an colonoscopy NG tube or, or colonoscopy. NG tube. Um, there are ongoing studies looking at oral capsules. Right. Um, which, if you can get over the ick factor, is probably a lot more convenient. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the initial versions are about 40 really big capsules. Okay. Um, which is a lot to take. Yeah. But, you know, if it helps, then, you know, certainly for C. diff, it can work. Which, right. So that's a good first step. But so far, it seems like what, what is needed for UC is probably a lot more than you need for C. diff. Okay. So right. whether that's more frequent, more repeated, more maintenance right or just more bacteria right it's not clear it's also getting complicated because some of this is we know it's the bacteria and the shift in the bacteria but can you shift the bacteria a different way mm -hmm. with viruses that kill bacteria okay and that's a whole new area of study that's just starting to open up mm -hmm. with what are called bacteriophage they're mm -hmm. viruses that feed on and kill bacteria and can you make essentially designer bacteriophage mm -hmm. that could essentially kill off the bad bacteria in a perfect world you could take in a capsule mm -hmm. um, exciting idea neat idea. on paper it looks great yeah um, can we make it real it sounds a little like Pandora's box ish mm -hmm. what if you let something out that's sort of Could, unintended consequences right and will that spread to other folks probably will it yeah. affect your neighbors family members microbiota Possibly, mm -hmm. um, and and that's a big question. And it, I think it'll be challenging to get bacteriophage therapy through like the FDA. Mm -hmm. Although apparently in Europe they have a couple of examples of bacteriophage therapy that are in clinical trials or close to being used. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a role for medication plus tweaking the microbiome together? I think that's probably going to be really important mm -hmm. um, because I think one of the challenges of the microbiome is we can do short-term shifts, yeah. but the gut immune system kind of pulls you back. Mm -hmm. And so possibly it's push the microbiome and then restrain the immune system at the same time okay. might give you more benefit than mm -hmm. either one alone. Mm -hmm. So I a lot of times tell patients that um, patients are looking towards, of course, having a cure or at least having some kind of sustainable, durable remission mm -hmm. for most people. And that it might look like 40 pills a, a week or whatever right. these studies were using in order to get your microbiome into the right place and then to keep, to keep it, it there. Right. You know, that it's, like you said, it's your body, your body likes to be at a certain place and it's going to keep trying to get back there. Push there. You yeah. have to keep trying you to fight know. back. And, and bizarrely enough, the quality control mm -hmm. of stool mm -hmm. will make it pretty darn expensive. Okay. Because if you're actually getting stool from humans, yeah. to make it safe, you have to test it for 30, 40 different infections. Oh my gosh, yeah. And that's expensive, and mm -hmm. that makes it the stool expensive. And in the long run, what we might end up with is instead of actually using stool, which has the risk of carrying infections, yeah. is having custom bacterial mixes or bacteriophage mixes okay. um, that will have a better safety profile, less risk of an infectious agent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's probably where we're going to end up. Okay. So 
how far away are we from taking the stool from the super poopers <laughs> mm -hmm. and figuring out what's making that work and then generating it in a lab right and then so there are there. several companies already doing this mm -hmm. and testing in clinical trials mm -hmm. um, initially first for c diff mm -hmm. uh, but they're also thinking very hard about ibd we're getting ready to start one of these trials at Michigan with a company called Ceres, S-E-R-E-S. Mm -hmm. They've put a lot of money into making these custom mixes based on the data they got from the super donors mm -hmm. uh, to see if it, they can make a custom mix that will do as well, almost as well right. as dual. Right. So let me ask you about a completely different topic, about um, uh, the custom ostomy printing that mm -hmm. you were doing at U of M. What's, what's going on with so that? So currently, um, it, it's a little bit of uh, a cottage venture mm -hmm. with a patient who's doing the 3D design and 3D printing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not his main job. He's, he's got oh, okay. a, a yeah. primary job. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit slow. Mm -hmm. um, what I'd like to do eventually is get funding to make that at least a half-time job for him mm -hmm. or potentially hire yes. a 3D modeler who could do that in his place. Right. Um, Right now, it's uh, about a two-week process between scanning and getting a fitted ostomy mm -hmm. wafer mm -hmm. for each patient. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're slowly enrolling folks and moving along. Mm -hmm. um, we've definitely improved the quality of the materials, made them softer, more okay. bendy. Uh, our early ones, it was actually, it was a great fit as long as you stood up. <laughs> if you tried to bend over, it wasn't so great. So we're doing a lot better on the materials and the bendiness mm -hmm. and the comfort. Mm -hmm. uh, still doing pretty well in terms of the seal and preventing leaks. Um, we've had a couple of people have a little bit of issue with the with allergies to the adhesive, so we're still tweaking that. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the folks who reach this point have been exposed to all kinds of adhesives sure. through their medical journeys mm -hmm. uh, and are kind of prone to allergies. So mm -hmm. you have to find a really non-allergenic but skin-safe slash beaten up ostomy skin safe. Mm -hmm. Adhesive. I, yeah, I feel like everybody would be on board. <laughs> you know, even with an ostomy, would be on board with yeah. that because it can be just terrible yeah, really what it does to your skin. Yeah. So, so that's moving. Is anyone else doing that? Is it you know? You know, I think the big companies, um, as far as I can tell, they don't feel like customization makes sense for them. They, okay. they want to make a one size fits all. Yeah. But they are moving toward more reshapeable or moldable versions. Okay. Uh, I've seen a couple of new products that really, they're heat sensitive and can mold a bit. Mm -hmm. and, and for relatively minor irregularities in the mm -hmm. surface around the ostomy, they seem to be pretty good. Mm -hmm. A little bit more expensive. And sometimes you get pushback from the insurer. Right. But they do, especially for folks who are having leak problems, do seem to help. Yeah. And already ostomy supplies can be pretty expensive. They really so. can. Um, you know, and I'm hopeful. I've definitely seen some patients where they were getting pushback from the insurer because they were going through so many supplies. Some of whom, if they moved to a moldable, were they were able to last longer. Right, right. And even though it was more expensive per wafer, sure. per ostomy setup, they actually ended up saving, the insurance company, I guess, ended up saving money, okay. giving fewer supplies. So that proof of concept is there, so do you think there. insurance companies kind of understand that, They're, in a way? They maybe? take a while to learn these things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> paying more upfront is anathema yeah, to them. They have yeah, a yeah. hard time paying more upfront. Right. But you can prove in a case study that, look, if a person isn't having to change, change. every single day, right. they can get a week out of... Um, it makes a big difference. Okay, yeah. Time. That's really good news. Yeah. When I had an ostomy, it was uh, it was really challenging to mm -hmm. find something that fit. And then 
working with the insurance companies. And yeah. I feel overall that we probably don't have enough ostomy care nurses in the U.S. No. And yeah. that a lot of folks who really need them aren't getting the access that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see a lot of questions online um, in regards to these things. And thankfully, there are people who have gone through their own battles and are you know able to offer help but i really do feel for the people that their first option shouldn't be to go to facebook and ask people it should be to call their et nurse that they've been working with for a while so it's really a shame is there do you know of any um anything in trying to get more like ipd nurses et nurses is there anybody working towards that you know, I know that in the UK, they are really dramatically expanding yeah. their IBD nursing mm-hmm. as a program and as a quality improvement approach. Mm-hmm. And it's been very beneficial, at least in their pilots. Yeah. Um, I don't know of a whole lot in the US other than at big IBD centers that are trying right. to add kind of more services. Right. Um, I don't think it's really reaching the community level at yeah. this point in the US. Okay. Yeah. And I think one of the advantages of the UK you know, there are trade-offs between being a nationalized health system and not, but mm-hmm. as a nationalized health system, they can think about the whole system mm-hmm. and essentially sort of do a IBD center at different intervals to cover the whole country. Right. And if you live in a certain district, you have an IBD center mm-hmm. and you can get those services reasonably close to home. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to be mindful of your time since you're, <laughs> you have to get a flight out of here, get back to, you going back to Michigan? Michigan? Of course, yeah. Um, But um, is there anything else uh, of interest that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think one of the really neat workshops that I participated in uh, was the first fibrosis workshop. Right, And really thinking about um, what we're going to do when we start having antifibrotic medications available. Mm -hmm. And there are now some available for fibrotic diseases of the lung Mm -hmm. that are actually approved and on the market. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a big push from pharma to have antifibrotic drugs for the liver, Mm -hmm. for liver cirrhosis, hepatitis C, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of science, really good science, in developing drugs that can treat scarring. Mm -hmm. And the hard part is kind of getting those over the wall into Crohn's disease. And can we use these medications to reduce obstructions, stenosis, and blockage mm-hmm. that leads to surgery in Crohn's disease and possibly reduce the rate of surgery in Crohn's mm-hmm. disease? Um, so one of the challenges there is, okay, so if even, even if we had a drug, how would we measure that it worked? And how would we prove the FDA that it's effective as well as safe? Um, and so part of this whole workshop was talking about different ways to measure improvement in fibrosis, Mm -hmm. whether it's making the tissue less stiff, reducing the amount of collagen, if we can measure collagen at the molecular level, um, and biomarkers in the blood that tell you how much um, extracellular matrix, the scar tissue, is being made. Mm -hmm. Um, And this has really gotten a boost in terms of funding and foundation from the RISK study, which came out a couple of years ago. It was a 10-year study of pediatric patients starting at diagnosis and following up every year. And they were looking for predictors of who would need surgery and have complicated stricturing or fistulizing disease. Mm -hmm. And what they found was one of the most important predictors, even at diagnosis, was that they saw increased expression of genes for extracellular matrix, even at diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And those kids were much more likely to go to early surgery. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, we have a way of identifying 
this person is going to have complicated Crohn's disease long before they have a stricture. Mm -hmm. Now the question is, what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. When we have a lot of a long pipeline of potential antifibrotic drugs, mm -hmm. and then if we do it, how do we measure it in clinical trials and prove to the FDA that this could work? Mm -hmm. Well, the idea being, if if we had antifibrotic therapies, that we would identify people who are prone to scarring and blockages, and have both an anti-inflammatory and an antifibrotic therapy mm -hmm. to prevent that scarring and blockage. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's, this is sort of a first ever, everybody who's been thinking about this problem in yeah. one room at the same time, saying, where do we go from here? Oh my gosh, so, that's exciting incredible. Stuff. I know you were tweeting from that session and I was telling you last night that uh, your tweets were so far out of my pay grade. I was like, what yeah. is, what, this sounds really interesting, but um, I'm gonna have to spend some time with it to yeah. understand it. But so. a lot of fast moving science mm -hmm. and on the plus side, the pharma industry, because of the prevalence of lung scarring and liver scarring, has mm -hmm. already invested a lot in understanding the basic science. Mm -hmm. Is this mostly prevention, or could it also work on someone that's already dealing that, with strict disease? That's what we're starting to think about. So mm -hmm. one of the more interesting presentations was from Steph Targan at Cedar sinai mm -hmm. And again, mouse model, mm -hmm. only 10% of chance it'll ever make it to humans. Yeah. But in a mouse model, they showed that they had an antibody to a molecule called TLNA that, where they could prevent fibrosis, mm -hmm. but they could also wait for the fibrosis to develop and reverse it. Mm -hmm. So in theory, if, if we make the leap to humans, you could have someone come in with a stricture, pain, obstruction, mm -hmm. nausea, vomiting, and actually give them a drug to loosen that up and open that up, wow. which would be neat. Are these oral infusions? That what particular is this? one would probably be an infusion because it's an antibody. Okay. But there are also small molecules that are promising that would be oral tablets. Wow. So we're not talking about something that's too terribly invasive. It's not like you'd have to right. uh, you you know, know, do and, topical endoscopy or something like that. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and we're still figuring out the, the theoretical concern is if you turn off scarring, Mm -hmm. to help this narrowing, will mm -hmm. it affect wound healing in other places? Right, Is there right. potential, say if somebody who has an obstruction mm -hmm. and a narrowing, but also have the areas of ulceration, mm -hmm. would you make their stricture better, but possibly make their ulcers worse? Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a big kind of theoretical concern of how do you get the balance just right? Mm -hmm. And that's something we're gonna have to sort out preferably in animal models first <laughs> before we expose people to yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You can't have kids, especially with kids, kids. you know, running around absolutely. and, you know, you hurt yourself and, oh no, it's not healing. Yeah, it's you not know. healing, exactly. <laughs> you can have a big you know, and, and that's part of, you know, some companies are working on gut-specific versions right. for that very reason. Right, you know, oh my gosh, that's really incredibly exciting. Thank you for yeah. taking the time sure. to explain it to me because yeah. I did not know what was going on in that session it's, yesterday. It's <laughs> a lot of science, but... <laughs> A lot of potential. But really very important stuff. Yeah. And so I was talking about your your social media, and can you just tell me where everyone can find you, where we can find right. out more so from you about what's going in on? In terms of on Twitter, I'm at IBD Doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, on Facebook, the University of Michigan IBD web, web page and mm -hmm. Facebook page. Um, a lot of information, I think probably the most patient-centered information is on our University of Michigan IBD page, which has a link to our YouTube series, IBD School, which has a lot of educational videos from patients, beginning from what is IBD, medical therapy for IBD, surgical options for IBD. We have a really popular series on fertility and pregnancy mm -hmm. for IBD that a lot of folks have given us good feedback on. Yeah. Oh, I love IBD School. It's wonderful. Okay. So I'll Thanks. make sure I put that all available for everyone to, right. to, to see. Thank you so much for sure. sitting with me, Dr. Higgins. It's right. really uh, a pleasure to connect with you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.
Hey, super listener. Thank you to Dr. Higgins for taking the time to talk with me literally on his way out of Las Vegas and for everything he does for people living with IBD. I know at times it can seem hopeless coping with everything these diseases throw at us, which is why I want to bring you the voices of those who are working to improve treatment. The meeting we were attending was Crohn's and Colitis Congress, which is put on by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and it's entirely focused on IBD. I highly recommend you follow Dr. Hickens on Twitter. His handle is IBD Doctor. You can find IBD School on YouTube, which is a project from the University of Michigan IBD team that is spearheaded by Dr. Higgins. I will, of course, put all of these links in the show notes and on the episode 45 page on my website. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as About IBD. If you are looking for disease information, please go to verywell.com. Once you're there, you can use the search box and you will find information about IBD that I have written and which has been medically reviewed by a practicing gastroenterologist. If you don't find the topic you're looking for, head over to my site, aboutibd.com, and use the contact form to send me your ideas. Thank you for listening. And if you're in the mood to tap out a review on Apple Podcasts, I would appreciate it. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. IBD.